Right, let's just uh, start with prayer. If, if only so that everyone feels they're really getting their money's worth at this fellowship. <laughs> oh, Father, thank you for for being here with us, and not just tonight, and not just here, but with us all the time, everywhere. Oh, Father, just open your word to us. Lord, thank you that you have given us what we need to know in a way that can't be missed. Lord, just a, a straight written word. And Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you'll just grant us understanding. Oh Lord, just open our eyes to see more of the wonder of Jesus. Because we ask it in his name. Amen. Right. Okay, after quite a break, isn't it? We return to the this uh, Law and Grace series that uh, we've been doing. And uh, <clears throat> it all centres around Romans 6, verse 14, when Paul says, you are not under law, but under grace. And uh, before we move on to the next phase of this series, where sort of like uh, we've got everything we need to know now, to just sum up the questions that we revolved the series around and to actually see the answers to them. So, you know, we start off tonight by way of a recapping. And then there's a couple of questions that we've got to ask and answer which are important at this stage. But first of all, let's recap. Let's go over the four questions that we've asked in this series. Now then, question number one was this. Paul said, he, uh, sort of, you are not under law, but under grace. And question number one was this, what is this law we're not under? Yeah, because of course, I mean, there are lots of people, you know, Christians who go around saying, you know, well, I mean, we don't have to do this, we don't have to do that. And you say, oh, why not? Oh, you know, we're not under law, we're under grace. Uh, we sort of mentioned that bloke who, uh, who said to Robert a few weeks ago that he didn't have to drive according to the speed limits because he's not under law but under grace. And, you know, so, so we, we sort of like ask this question, what is this law that we're not under as Christians? And we saw that the answer was very clearly, it's the Mosaic law. That is the law that we are not under. The law of Moses, Old Testament law, Old Covenant. That is what we are not under. Call it what you will. Um, in the New Testament, it's usually referred to simply as the law. So that is the law we're not under, the law of Moses. Now, the second question we asked is, well, okay, uh, if we're not under the law, and we've seen it's uh, that one, why not? Why aren't we under the law? And uh, the answer to that is, well, first it was a covenant between God and Israel, and we're Gentiles. So that's the real answer to why we're not under that law. But of course, there's more to it, because if Jews get saved, they're not under it either. And uh, what we saw in regards to the law is that of all the covenants in the Bible that God has made with man, the law stands alone in that it was a suzerain vassal one. Now, we saw that what that meant was a covenant that had a conditional thing attached to it. So, the point is, 
that God, as the suzerain, the greater power, lumped a covenant on them and said, this is what you've got to do. And if Israel didn't fulfill their part of it, the covenant was broken and God didn't protect them. All right. So the covenant was unique to that extent, a conditional one, and the only one in the Bible that God has made with man. Now, we saw as well that it was the constitution of a nation, you know, sort of, firstly, um, I mean, socially, legally, um, in all those ways, it, it was simply, you know, God called a nation and said, here is the law that you're going to live by. But it was far more wider than that, in that it also sort of went as far as the issue of salvation. It covered how do you get saved. And, uh, and of course, the whole point was that under the law, God said, now, if you do this, 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 and this, and there were hundreds of them, and if you don't do that, that, and that, and there were hundreds, then what God said, you'll be saved. So it presented salvation on the basis of works. If people obeyed the commandments and the conditions, then God said, you'll be saved. So it was a covenant of salvation, but on the basis of works, right? Now, we saw two things in regards to the law. Firstly, one of the reasons that God gave it was to convict people of their sin. That the commandments of God in the law, if you like, acted as a straight edge. And it revealed the bentness of man's sin. So, on the one hand, it said, if you obey the law, you'll get saved. But what it was doing, really, was showing them their sin because it didn't matter how hard they tried, they couldn't keep the law. And so we saw that God gave that law so that sin could be exposed. When mankind judges itself, when Israel looked at itself in the light of the law, they knew that there was sin in their life. So the law came so that conviction of sin could occur. And then the second thing about it was that it demonstrated once and for all that if people were to be saved, then it was no use having a covenant that was a two-sided one. It showed for all time that if salvation was going to be, you know, a kind of a you do your bit, I'll do mine, then that's no good at all. And so the purpose of the law was to prove that salvation would have to come as a completely free gift, a royal grant. So the law, it showed their sin. You're under the power of sin. And it showed as well that if you're going to be saved, then it cannot be through law. Because if you're under sin, you can't obey the law. And if salvation is through the law, then you can't be saved. And so it showed that if God was to save, then that was going to have to be in an entirely different way. A covenant would have to come 
that would be royal grant, that was simply a gift and it depended only on God and not on man at all. So the law proved that if salvation was to come, then salvation had to be by grace and not law at all. So therefore the law came, revealed sin, and revealed that man couldn't be saved by works because he cannot overcome that sin. And it demonstrated that salvation was going to have to be on the basis of grace. Therefore, in every way, the law was the perfect means of bringing sinful man to grace. Because it showed mankind that in order to be saved, a covenant of law is no good. A covenant of grace is the only way. And that is what the law did. It was simply there to bring people to the point where they could see if I'm going to get saved, it's got to be through grace. And of course that is exactly what God did. All right, He brought in grace. And we define the error of a legalist as someone who lives the Christian life on the basis of law, on the basis of restrictions um, that aren't in the New Covenant. So on the basis of the Old Covenant or something else. So a legalist is someone who says, follow the Lord and you've got to obey all these rules even though they're not part of grace. All right. Um, now then, thirdly, the third question is we ask, well, right, we're not under law and we've seen why not. So what therefore is this grace we are under? And uh, the answer to that is, it's the New Covenant. And we've seen that that was an unconditional royal grant. That what happened is that God found a way in Jesus for us to be saved without us doing a thing. No law, no works, but simply through faith simply by trusting in Jesus and what he'd done, that Jesus shed his blood on the cross and sin got dealt with. And we saw that whereas faith is the means of how we connect into this, because if we trust in him, we're saved, but we saw that far from that being a condition of entering into grace, that the fact that you've got faith is the sign that you're in the covenant of grace. Because we saw that those who God calls, the first thing he does, he gives them faith. And so our faith is part of the gift of grace. And we saw in Ephesians 1 and verse 11 that this was according to, and Paul says, the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And so the grace we are under is a covenant that is a royal grant. It's a gift. God says, I am going to save you. So he gives us faith in Jesus, and through that faith, we're saved. It is a gift from God, full stop. And it has to be, because there's nothing we can do 
to overcome our sin. And whilst we're in slavery to sin, we can't even want to be free. And so grace or salvation was a royal grant from God, a gift that he slaps on you and you get, all right? There's no getting out of it. This is something that God does. He grants you that gift of salvation. And that is what being under grace is all about, a new covenant as opposed, as opposed to the old one. And the fourth question that we asked was, is being under grace a form of lawlessness then? Um, you know, because Paul had to deal with people who were saying, oh, well, let's carry on in sin. And, you know, and grace will just abound. You know, oh, well, it's no problem, keep sinning, say sorry, and God will forgive us. And there we've got the error of license. You know, the idea that, well, I mean, we're saved, it's a free gift, it doesn't matter how you live. And that's the error of license. And uh, we saw that the idea that being under grace is a form of lawlessness um, is a daft one, but not only that, it's wrong. It's very wrong. And that uh, we saw that grace is, its, is itself a covenant. You've got the old covenant based on works, but the new one is based purely on the grace of God. But the point is, it's a covenant, and it was given not just to provide us with salvation in the sense of our sins are forgiven and we're going to heaven, but the new covenant was also the means of God writing his laws on our hearts and on our minds. So the idea of grace isn't just to justify, it wasn't just to set us free from the penalty of sin, but it was also to sanctify to set us free from the power of sin. And we saw that to this effect, it has demands and restrictions that are placed on us. We saw they're not a condition for keeping salvation. I mean, once you're saved, if you never obey the Lord again, you're still saved. You know, you, you know it can't be lost in that sense. The idea is that in a covenant, a responsibility is placed upon us as those people in it. And we saw that what happened, in fact, was that God took us out of the slave market of sin and he's made us his slaves. And that any idea of complete freedom, we saw, was untrue. The only freedom that mankind has got is to choose who he's going to be in slavery to, sin or the Lord. All right. So the point is that far from being a lawlessness, to be under grace is to be under the law of the new covenant. Um, you know, and it's all there in the New Testament. And all that teaching applies to us, and we are duty-bound to keep it. So any question of license saying, oh, well, of course, you know, the new covenant doesn't apply to us, we're free to do what we like. It's nonsense. The old covenant, we're free of that, but not of the new. The teachings of the New Testament are binding upon us, uh, and we saw as well also the covenant that God made with Noah as well. And so basically what we've done there is answered all the questions that we set out 
uh, to answer in the beginning. Um, but we've got to, to, to tie up some loose ends now, and, uh, and what we're going to do tonight is we're going to answer two questions. And uh, hopefully the more astute amongst you have actually asked these questions, and you've all been thinking, oh, I hope Beresford thinks to, to cover them. Well, as I ask them, you'll find out how astute you've been. Question number one is this. If the old covenant has passed away with the coming of the new covenant, right, which it has, um, and if we're therefore dead to it in Jesus, which we are, we've died to the law, uh, why bother with it at all? I mean, why bother to, to even read that massive portion of the Old Testament? You see the point? Why not just tear it out of the Bible and have done with it? Are you seeing the basis of that question? We're free from the law, we're dead to it, it's not binding on us at all, and yet a massive portion of the Bible is that covenant that we're free from. So the question is, why bother with it? Why not just tear it out of your Bible and make your Bible study easier? Because a massive part of the Bible is that very law that we're seeing we're dead to. So therefore, the question is, why do we need it then? If we're dead to it, if it's done its job, if the new covenant has fulfilled it and killed it off, why is it still there? Why does it have any bearing upon us at all? And the answer to that question is because there is so much to be learned from it about the new covenant. Now, we're under the new covenant, not the old. But the old is useful to us because it teaches us an awful lot about the new covenant. Um, if you go to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, <coughs> I think I can demonstrate this to you from, uh, from Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's uh, read initially from verse 1. And Paul writes this, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, in those verses, what Paul is doing is that he's going to use the position that Israel was in relative to Moses as a parallel to the situation we're in with the Lord. All right. Um, so he refers back to Moses and how Israel were baptised, you know, when they passed through the sea. And he's drawing a parallel between that and us, you know, sort of being saved and following the Lord. And in verse 4, he, he shows that Jesus was with them even then. Do you see that? Under the old covenant, but Jesus was there with them. And, of course, individuals were getting saved all the time. And the new covenant overlapped it. 
In fact, we saw in one study that the new covenant was running before the old covenant came on the scene, because Abraham, who was before Moses, got saved by faith, you see. Um, now, let's read, um, let's read verse, verse 6. And he says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now, what Paul is saying there is that the events under the Old Covenant happened because they're acting as examples to us who are under the New Covenant. So the Old was there partly to teach us who are under the New. Now, if we read from verse 7 to 10, all right, and Paul gives examples, he's saying, look, these things happened way back then with Moses under the law um, as an example to us. And, and now he, he gives examples of this example. He says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not be immoral as they were, and in verse 9, we should not test the Lord. Verse 10, we should not grumble. Now, that refers to what happened in Israel, in their camp, while Moses was in the mountain getting the law. Is he? Moses was up there, you know, he's getting the Ten Commandments, and Israel build a calf, and they have an orgy. All right because they were discontent, they were grumbling about the Lord and they thought it was better in Egypt, alright? So the point is, this was the very time when the law was coming into play, alright? And Paul says that it happened to be an example to us, alright? Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. The new covenant of grace is here. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And so what Paul is saying, he's using the law to teach Christians who were under grace. And he's saying all that happened because there's so much for us to learn from it. And it's all there as a warning to us as to how we ought to live. All right. Now, the word you get here is examples. Twice he says, all this happened as an example to us. Now, this Greek word, example, is tupos. And it's the word that we get a type from. Um, and a type is a picture of something, a simile, or an allegory, all right? Um, I mean, C.S. Lewis in his Narnia Tales, allegorical, using one thing to describe something else. But the allegories that we've got here are actual history. Can you see the point? And the Old Covenant is a massive allegory of the Christian life. But far from being fictional, like the Narnia tales, 
it's actual history and that God has arranged the whole history of Israel to be an allegory of the Christian life so that we can read it and see that everything stands for something else everything in the old covenant actually represents something in the new covenant all right so we've got an allegory acted out in history and if you want to understand history think of it like this his story that's what history is his story because God has arranged the whole of history to be an example a type an allegory of life in the new covenant of grace think of it like this if the New Testament gives the complete and full doctrine which it does then the Old Testament shows us it being acted out in people's lives so if the New Testament is the doctrine the Old Testament is that doctrine being acted out so that we can see it clearly um, or, or think of it like this if the New Testament is the script then the old is the movie have you read the Bible? No, but I've seen the film. It's that sort of thing. That what we've got, the truth of New Testament teaching in the Old Testament under the law is being acted out for us as an allegory. But an allegory that is historical. It's true. It's not fiction. It's not made up. It is actual, true history. Um, if you go to Hebrews, and uh, chapter 8 initially and, uh, and what the writer to the Hebrews does is, is that he he argues very much in a parallel way to Paul um, but he, he, he kind of homes in on it from the aspect of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrificial system you know sort of like Paul homed in on more the commandments but the writer to the Hebrews he takes the aspects of the law you know, which covered the temple and the priestly duties and the sacrificial system, all right. Uh, now then, first of all, cha uh, Hebrews chapter 8, and uh, we've just got uh, three or four <coughs> verses to read here. Uh, first of all, he Hebrews chapter 8, now the first part of verse 5. Um, he says, They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Right. Go to chapter 9 and verse 23. Never mind what the they are, that's, that's not the thing that we're after, but uh, he, chapter 9 and verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one, but entered heaven it, itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. And then chapter 10 and verse 1. The law, the old covenant, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Now, can you just see what he's saying there? He's using words like shadow, uh, copy, 
And what he's saying is exactly the same thing as we've seen. That everything in the old, every aspect of the old, was a type or a picture or a historical uh, way of illustrating the truth of the new covenant. So that everything in the old was a picture of something in the new. And because, you know, we've got the whole of the Bible now, we can safely interpret each one. As we study the whole Bible, we can say, oh yes, this is clearly in the Old Testament, this is a picture of this in the new. It can be safely interpreted in the light of the New Testament. Quick example, when Jesus died on the cross, in the temple, you had a veil. And once a year, the high priest went behind that veil into the Holy of Holies, and he made a sacrifice, um, meaning that the sins of Israel for that year could be forgiven, all right? Now, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened was that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, all right? Now, the temple, Old Covenant, the veil, Old Covenant, all based on the old. And yet, when Jesus died, that veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, why? Well, it was the picture that once Jesus died, the veil of sin that stands between us and God was gone. Therefore, through Jesus, everyone can come into the Holy of Holies, because it's Jesus himself. We don't need priests. And it was torn from the top, because like God reached down and he ripped it. You see? So, what it was showing is that the temple and everything that it had come to represent and stand for was over now because of Jesus. So, once Jesus died on the cross, the barrier of sin was gone, so likewise the veil in the temple was torn. So then, what did the veil stand for? The sin barrier. And Jesus broke it on the cross. Um, you know, sort of like that Holy of Holies. What did it stand for? It was Jesus, because we can come near to him. If we've seen him, we've seen God. And so, can you see that the temple, the veil, the priest going in once a year, everything of that was a picture of something that was going to happen in the New Covenant, i.e. the death of Jesus. Um, I mean, why did Moses, for example, die in the wilderness? I mean, Moses, he led God's people out of Egypt, but he died in the wilderness. Why didn't Moses get into Canaan? Why didn't he? It's as if, you know, he, he did the leading. He was a great leader. He really trusted the Lord. God really used him. And yet Moses, who led the people out, didn't get to lead them in. Why did Moses die in the wilderness? Well, the answer is because Moses was the law. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. So, who was it who led Israel into the Promised Land? It was Joshua. Now, Joshua is simply the Hebrew for Jesus. 
it means saviour. So Moses, who was the law, could lead them out of the world. Why could he do that? Well, because the law convicts you of sin and shows you that you need the new covenant of grace. So the law can facilitate you getting saved. But, in order to live the Christian life, is Moses any good? Well, no, of course not. He's the law. We're not under law. We're under grace. Moses died in the wilderness. Joshua led the people in. Joshua, Jesus, Saviour. Do you see the point there? Everything in the old covenant, Moses included, is a picture of a truth we need to know in the new covenant. Um, now, therefore, we're seeing why it is that the old is important for us. We need to have it there. We need to be able to read it and to study it. Because even though we're not under it, even though we're dead to it, it's got so much to teach us about the new that we are under. If you just go to Matthew and actually see, see Jesus say something about this. Uh, Matthew, because of course J Jesus understood this. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 and uh, find verse 52. <coughs> and this is Jesus speaking. He said to them, Every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So what Jesus was saying is that teaching that truly represents God is going to include not just new things, that was the new covenant of grace, but it's going to include the old as well because we need them. The old things are there to teach us something about the new things. And in fact, there are some things in the new covenant that we can only understand as we study the old covenant, because the old covenant helps us to interpret them in a correct way. Let me sort of give you two more examples of this. Remember, what we're saying, we need the old, even though we're dead to it, the old covenant is not binding on us, but we need it because of the things it teaches us about the new covenant. Everything in the old is a type of something in the new. Now, two more examples. First of all, let's take the temple. All right, we've referred to it already, okay. Um, you had the tabernacle first, that was a tent, and Israel sort of carried that through the wilderness. And then you had the temple, all right. So what happened was that once Israel came out of Egypt, they had the tabernacle and God lived in that. It was a portable tent. Um, then they got into Canaan and God lived in the tent uh, right up until the time of Solomon. And then God lived in the temple. And, uh, you know, sort of God then lived in the temple for the duration of the Old Testament period. All right. Now then, go to Colossians. Colossians and chapter 1. Now remember the point about the tabernacle and then the temple is that God lived in them. And Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19, and we read this, speaking about Jesus. And it says, For God was pleased 
to have all his fullness dwell in him. And of course dwell means to live. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. The RSV is much better there. In the RSV, that verse comes out, for in him the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Which sounds better. Still having trouble with this NIV, but I've got to get used to it, haven't I? Um, John, John chapter 2 and uh, verse 19. Um, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. So, what have we seen? Under the law, God lived firstly in the tabernacle, the portable tent. Then he lived in the temple. Then we come to Jesus. And we read from Paul that the fullness of God dwelt in him, that he was God's home. And we read here that Jesus, speaking about the temple, has a little play on words and says, no, the temple is my body. You think the temple is that building. Well, it's not anymore. The temple is my body. Now, the temple was where God lived. God became a man called Jesus. Jesus was God. Therefore, God lived in Jesus. The tabernacle and then the temple in the old was a picture of Jesus himself. And that's why we need it. And anything you learn about the temple in the Old Covenant, you're learning something about Jesus because it represented him. As simple as that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And now we see this go one step further. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, verse 19. He says, and here he's speaking to individuals. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God. <coughs> so now we go one step further. We've seen that God lived in the tabernacle and then the temple, but that was a picture of Jesus. God lived in Jesus. But now Paul is saying that we as Christians are individually the temple of God. Now why is that? We'll go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, <coughs> and I'm going to read verse 15 to 17 first. John chapter 14, and starting at verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. 
So there Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is going to come and live in you. Now go to verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So what have we seen? Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to come and live in you. But not only the Holy Spirit, my Father is going to come in and I am going to come in as well. So what we've got here is that the triune God lives in each one of us. So God lived in the temple but it was a picture of Jesus because the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him. But now Jesus lives in us. So therefore God lives in us, we are the temple as well. That temple was also a picture of each individual Christian. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, verse 16. Um, Paul says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So there, Paul is talking about the corporate church. Not individuals, but we as the corporate church. The corporate church is God's home as well. It's where he lives. So the temple was a picture firstly of Jesus himself and what he did, secondly of you individually as someone who's saved because God lives in you, but thirdly of the church corporately because God lives in us as his corporate people. So therefore, everything about the temple is a picture of Jesus and the Christian life and being part of the church. And if you just go to Revelation chapter 21, and uh, we're just going to see something here about the, um, about the eternal state, just, just one fact about the eternal state. Revelation 21 uh, and verse 22. Now this is John seeing the eternal state, alright? I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are his temple. Because of course the temple, it's dead, it's gone, you see. It was only there under the law to be a picture or an allegory of the Christian life. So, Therefore, anything we can learn about the temple, an entirely separate study, but everything that you can learn about the temple, every aspect of the temple, its design, its function, uh, the priesthood that ran it, the sacrificial system in it, everything was a picture of the Christian life and allegory. And if you just uh, go to 1 Peter 2, just to finish this particular section, but just so you can see it as clearly 
as possible. 1 Peter chapter 2 and uh, in verse 4. And Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So can you see the temple under the law, you had the building, you had the priesthood, and you had the sacrifices. And Peter says, that's us lads. And why is it us? Because Jesus lives in us. So the temple under the law was a type, an allegory of the Christian life. All right. Uh, just very quickly, we'll do one more example, because you know, again, this is quite startling. And we'll just sort of take the picture um, in, in the Bible of Israel coming out of Egypt through the wilderness and into Canaan. Um, Egypt. Now, what does that stand for? Egypt represented the unregenerate state, someone who is not saved. Pharaoh stands for Satan, the god of this world, because in Egypt, under Pharaoh, whatever Pharaoh said went. And you'll remember that Israel were kept under the taskmasters, and they were given impossible burdens to perform. And, uh, you know, the taskmasters would whip them and beat them mercilessly. And the taskmasters were a picture of our slavery to sin. So Egypt represented you and me before we got saved. We were under Pharaoh, the god of this world, and the taskmasters, we couldn't get out of their grip. That is a picture of our sin, our unbridled old nature, all right? So, along comes Moses, you're convicted of sin, because that's the law, see? And you're brought out of Egypt, you're saved, okay. Right, now after Egypt, where are you heading? Well, you're heading to the Promised Land, we'll get there in a moment, but you go through the wilderness. Now, why that? Now then, it took God a few, oh, incidentally also, while Israel were in Egypt, all right, it was the Israelites who were brought out of the world. God brought his chosen people out of the world. Oh, so I chuck that in. Um, now then, it took God a few days to get Israel out of Egypt. But it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Now, can you see the difference? It took God a few days to get Israel out of Egypt. But it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Now, the point is, you and I came out of the world in the twinkling of an eye. We believed on Jesus. And we were translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvellous light, as Paul says. But I bet it doesn't say that in the NIV, but it's a translation <laughs> I like. Right. Now, the point is, we came out of the world immediately. But don't we all know what a problem it is getting the world out of us? And in fact, the truth is that God never did get Egypt out of Israel. What happened, all the Israelites, except two people, all those thousands and thousands of people, all but two of them died in the wilderness. It was their children 
who went into the promised land. So, you're brought out of the world, you're saved. How does God deal with the world in you? Death. You die. Death to self. Death to sin. Sharing the death of Jesus. It's a picture of sanctification, isn't it? Death to self and to the world. Just, just go to Galatians. And uh, Galatians chapter 6. <coughs> and uh, verse 14. And Paul... Galatians 6, verse 14. Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. And that's what the wilderness is about. Death to self and to the world. Now then, after that, then, it's going into Canaan. Now, Canaan means the land of promise. That's what it actually means. And uh, it's a picture of coming into the new life in Christ that we have. Um, God said to them, look, the whole land is yours, but I will give you each bit that you put your foot down on. And it's a picture of growing in the Christian life. You don't get the whole land all at once, it's been given you, the whole lot is yours, but it's only as you progress forward step by step that you come into the reality of it. And also, Canaan was a place of warfare. Now, sometimes in hymns and that, you get the picture that Canaan, you know, sort of like represents heaven. It doesn't in the Bible, and you know, no way does the promised land represent heaven. It was continual warfare. And there's no warfare in heaven. But of course, the Canaanite, the Canaanites, they represented the principalities and powers that we are in warfare against. Because the point was, as Israel moved forward into what God said is yours, they had to push off all the Canaanites. And God had given them the authority to do that. So, Canaan is a picture of coming into the fullness of life in Christ. It's a picture of maturing in the Lord. It's a picture of, of, of kind of growing in Him you know, the idea that Paul says about every man growing up into the head which is Christ, or becoming fully mature, like a mature son. And so, therefore, the allegory, or the typology we've got here, is this. Egypt represents the world. Um, the wilderness deals with us, place of death. The wilderness represents the flesh. But Canaan, what's the battle with there? The devil. And so what you've got is the world, the flesh, and the devil. The enemies that we have. So therefore, the picture of Israel coming out of Egypt through the wilderness into Canaan, again, it's a massive allegory of the Christian life. Getting saved, getting sanctified, spiritual warfare, growing up into Christ. And uh, as we're going to see shortly, the point about the promised land is that all they had to do was take it. It was already theirs. They didn't get it by effort. They didn't get it, you know, they just, every, every bit of ground they put their foot on, God said, I'll give that to you. It all came to them by way of a gift, all right? And it's a picture of the Christian life. So, 
we've asked the question, if we're dead to the old covenant, the law, you know, if it's gone and, and it's had its day, blah, 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 and we're under grace, why bother with it? And the answer to that question, as I've shown you, is because there's so much to learn from it about the new covenant of grace we are under. In fact, the old covenant is an allegory of the new covenant. And now that we've got the teaching of the New Testament, the script, we can watch the film and really understand everything that's going on. So, that's why we need the Old Covenant, because without it, we can't properly understand the New Covenant. It teaches us so much about it. Right, that was question number one. Now, question number two is this. And you'll have to put your thinking caps on here, all right? Now then, if the New Covenant places on us the responsibility of obedience to its demands and restrictions, because remember we've seen that to be under grace doesn't mean you can do what you like, it's not lawlessness, it is a covenant. And there are laws within it that we are duty-bound to obey. So therefore, if being in the New Covenant puts us in a place of responsibility, whereby we must obey its laws and teachings, then does that mean, and this is the question, does that mean that whereas justification is by faith, that sanctification, because remember our obedience to the teaching of the new covenant is how we get sanctified. Do you remember we saw the picture of the caterpillar turns into a butterfly and it's got wings? And the New Testament is our pilot's manual. It shows us how to flap our wings and, and fly, all right? So, therefore, given that grace places on us a responsibility to obey its laws and teachings, does that mean that whereas being justified was by faith, that sanctification is actually by works? Uh, or, to put it another way, is it justification by faith, but sanctification by, by works? All right. I know this is complicated, bear with me. Are we saved from the penalty of sin by grace, but from the power of sin by law? Can you see the question? We know that when we believed on Jesus, we were saved. We were justified. We were set free from the penalty of sin once and for all, okay? But to be sanctified, to live in obedience to the covenant of grace, all right, then that's how we get sanctified, that's how we get set free from the power of sin. So the question is, is justification by faith, but sanctification by works? Or is it justification on the basis of grace, but sanctification is on the basis of law? Can you see that? Well, we've got to answer that question. Well, the answer is, no, of course not. It is all by faith. It is all by the grace of God. Sanctification, being set free from the power of sin in our lives, is a free gift in exactly the same way that justification or being set free from the penalty of sin was. It is a completely free gift. It's not by works, it's not by effort, it's not by law, it's by grace, it's by faith, it's receiving a free gift. In exactly the same way that glorification, 
when we're set free from the very presence of sin, that happens when we die, or at the rapture, alright, that's a free gift as well. Happens just like that, okay. So, what I'm going to show you now is that being sanctified isn't by works, it isn't by law, it's by faith, it's by grace. Exactly the same as getting justified it was and being glorified will be. It's all one package. There's a complete package you get when you get saved. And sanctification is part of that package, alright? And it's a free gift and it's based purely on grace. Now, I want to explain this, because obviously the whole thing is, you might be thinking, yeah, but if you don't live in obedience, it's not going to happen, is it? And the answer is no, of course it's not. And then you might think, yeah, but then that makes it works, doesn't it? This is almost like the old covenant. You know, we know that we're saved because we believe on Jesus and we're saved once and for all. Yeah, we can, that's a gift, we can't lose it, blah, blah, blah. But this sanctification business, this sounds like the law to me. This is if you live in obedience, then your sanctification will happen. So it's conditional, isn't it? So it's law. Now, I want to show you it isn't. Let's remind ourselves, all right, what is it that the new covenant has done that the old covenant couldn't do. Well, it saved us, yes. But in regards to being sanctified, what has the new covenant done that the old covenant couldn't do? All the old covenant could do was saying, you've got to be holy. That's all the old covenant said, you've got to be holy. And it said it's people who couldn't be holy, so it's no good. But what has the new covenant done? What happened to us the moment we were born again? Well, we saw it, didn't we? The new covenant put God's holy laws on our minds and wrote them on our hearts. The new covenant changes us on the inside. You see that? The moment you were born again, you got a new nature. And it was a completely free gift. You didn't do anything to earn it. You got it as a free gift. Let's actually see this. Go to Ephesians. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 4 because <coughs> we're asking the question is sanctification by effort? we know that justification is a free gift and we know that glorification is going to be a you know, free gift but this sanctification it's, it, it, you know, isn't it law surely? You know, based on what we do we do our bit, God does his bit I want to show you it isn't like that at all because it's all based on grace now Ephesians 4 and verse 22 Listen to this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what's he saying? The moment you were born again, God's laws were written on your hearts and minds. Now what does that mean? It means that you received a new nature that was created just like God. And that new nature is righteous and holy just like God is. And the reason it's just like God is, is because it's God's nature. God has shared his nature with you and I. 
He put it in us when we were born again, because Jesus came to live in us. Father came to live in us. The Holy Spirit came to live in us. Go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9. He says, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So, the point is that God has actually put within us a new nature, which is holy, in exactly the same way that the old nature is evil, is righteous in exactly the same way that the old nature is sinful, and which cannot sin in exactly the same way that our old nature can't help but sin. God has put that new nature within us. It's there. It's a fact. We have that new nature. Now then, what is sanctification? It is this. We simply, by faith, by believing the truth of what God's Word says about it, we simply act on it and live by the new nature <coughs> rather than the old nature. You see the point? It's by faith. We simply, by faith, believe what the Bible says that we've got a new nature and do not have to go with the old one. We believe that and act on it and to the extent we do, we find that it's fulfilled in us. So what have we got here? What is the basis of being sanctified? It's the obedience of faith. In exactly the same way that when you got saved, that was the obedience of faith. You believed on Jesus, you put your faith in Him. You simply believed and acted on what you then knew to be true. And that is exactly the same truth of how we get sanctified. Acting on the truth of God's Word and trusting Him to fulfil it in us. Um, go to Galatians and chapter 3. <clears throat> because the question we're asking, being under grace means that we ought to live in obedience to the teachings of the New Covenant or the New Testament. Yeah. We're asking the question, but doesn't that mean then that it's law? It, you know, isn't this works, you know, justified by faith, but sanctified by works? Justified by grace, but sanctified by law? And I'm trying to show you that sanctification <coughs> is a free gift just as much as justification was. You do not earn sanctification by effort. This is the thing we need to realise. Now in Galatians 3, and uh, let's read the first four verses, alright? Now, this is, this is quite, quite amazing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, they've been reading Christian top ten paperbacks, you see. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, 
Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you really suffered so much for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? Now then, what Paul is doing, he's writing to a church and the Jews in this church have said, look, we've got to, we've got to stay under the law of Moses. All right, we're saved, we're saved, but if we're to be sanctified, we've got to obey the law of Moses. And that is what Paul is writing to them about. And he's saying, for heaven's sake, look, you started off with faith and now you're ending by law, all right? And what he does here is that Paul parallels sanctification with ministering the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I, what he does is that he's trying to get them to understand the nature of how sanctification works. And he does this by saying, look, can't you see that sanctification works in the same way that the gifts of the Holy Spirit work. And what they were doing, they were saying, look, we're going to get sanctified because we're going to work hard, because we're going to obey the law, because we're going to put effort into it. You know, it's down to us, lads, and we're going to give it everything we've got. And Paul's saying, what a load of rubbish. He says, that is not, you know, that is not what salvation is all about. He said, that wasn't how you were saved, was it? You simply got saved by believing. And it's the same with being sanctified. And he draws the parallel with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now then, remember we saw a couple of studies ago um, that, that the Holy Spirit is the executor of Jesus' will. We saw that Jesus left the last will and testament. It's called the New Covenant of Grace. When Jesus died, he named us in his will. And what he left us in his will was himself, his life, everything he had. Now the Holy Spirit is the executor of his will. And the, the, the executor of a will, it's his job to make sure you get what has been left in the will. So the Holy Spirit, his ministry, his work, is to enable us to receive what Jesus has left us. And what Jesus has done is that he's given us a new nature. The very life of Jesus is inside of us. So, sanctification is the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us in much the same way as the gifts of the Holy Spirit are. Now, here's the point. This is what Paul is arguing. He's saying, look, you Galatians, you're now trying to get sanctified on the basis of law, on the basis of works. You're thinking that sanctification is down to you, that it depends on you but it's to do with your effort and your struggling and your striving. And he says, I want to show you that that isn't the case. And what Paul says is, look, sanctification is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What else is? And so he says, the gifts of the Spirit. Now then, he says that when you receive the gifts of the Spirit, he says, do you do that by observing the law? Or do you get the gifts of the Spirit by simply believing, <coughs> by faith, by acting on faith? Of course, the answer is, you don't minister the gifts of the Spirit on the, by law. It's not that, well, if you, if you obey the law of Moses, you'll get the gifts of the Spirit. You simply pray and receive by faith. Lord, you've said it, you do it. They're received by faith. And what Paul is saying, sanctification or holiness is received in exactly the same way. And the key to understanding it is simply this. The Holy Spirit enables us to prophesy. You could not in a million years earn a prophecy. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, all right? 
So, the Holy Spirit enables you to prophesy, but we have to open our mouths to speak it. So yes, there's effort involved. There's a response involved. But that response isn't earning. That response is simply us allowing the Lord to do through us what it is he wants to do. But it's him who does it. I mean, the Holy Spirit brings the healing power of Jesus. But we have to pray and lay hands on people. Now then, when we pray and lay hands on people, we're not earning healing. We're simply responding in faith. We're saying, Lord, we're trusting you. This is our act of obedience. This is the obedience of our faith. And it is exactly the same for sanctification or being made holy. Holiness, sanctification, the same words. Uh, if you go to Romans 6, Romans chapter 6, and verse... Verse 11, Paul simply says this, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the Greek word there for count is the Greek word for reckon. Count on it. It's the truth. Act on it. So if you believe God's giving you a prophecy, open your mouth and act on it. Count on it. That's the response of faith. And what Paul is saying here, look, you've got a new nature. You're dead to sin. Believe it. Believe it. Act on it. And to the extent you believe it and act on it, it will be true. It will actualize in your life. The theory, if you like, or the potential will become a reality. And that is what Paul is saying. It's simply the stance and obedience, not of law, not, not working a way to earn something, but it's the stance, the obedience of faith, simply through the grace of God. Because the new nature, holiness, sanctification, is a gift that God has already given you. It's not a question that you're saved, now get holy. In the same way that you're justified, you have your sanctification. It's already there. Because what is it? It's the life of Jesus within us. It's there. What God requires of us isn't the... the the works of law, trying to earn it, but it's our response of faith, believing it to be true, stepping out on it. Uh, go, go to Philippians. Philippians 2, and uh, find verse 12. Um, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So what's Paul saying there? He says, look, God works in you to will and to act. He gives the desire to be holy, he gives the power to be holy. All right? God wills, God acts. Work out, therefore, your own salvation. And what Paul is saying is, look, work out what God has worked in. You see? Work out what God has worked in. A free gift. Not based on effort, it's not law, it's not works, but it's Paul saying, look, you've got a free gift let it out. Work out what God has worked into you. 
It's the life of Jesus within us. And if we step out in faith, believing that, then we will find that God will be willing and acting in our lives. And we will find sin being overcome. We will find that we change. Yes, yeah, sometimes very, very slowly over long periods of time. But the point is, sin will be overcome because it's the power of Jesus within us overcoming it. You see, it's work out what God has worked in. Go to Ephesians 2. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 2 and verse... Um, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, start at verse 8. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not by works, so no one can boast. And then he goes on to say, that's justification. Now he speaks of sanctification. It's exactly the same. He says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are his workmanship. And that word workmanship, um, in the Greek, is poema. It's the word we get poem from, and it specifically means a work of art. We are God's work of art. Because through us, God is showing the beauty of his holiness, his righteousness. Right? So the point is, it's the Lord doing it through us. All we have to do is allow the Lord to come out, to respond with the obedience of faith. But that's not law, that's not works, because that's what we did to get saved in the first place. We heard the call of Jesus, believe on me, so we did. Repent of your sins, so we did. So, sanctification is not by the law, because the law can't change anyone. Sanctification is us living by the laws of God, which are written on our hearts and our minds. And it's God himself who enables us to do so, according to our response. And our response is the obedience, not of law, it's the obedience of faith. It's saying, Lord, you're, you're telling me that sin can lose its power over me. Wow! I'm going to go with that, Lord. I'm going to respond to that. I'm going to believe that. Now then, yeah, if there are Christians who don't want it to be true because they like their sin, they're not going to enter into sanctification. But those of us who do, it's not because of works. It's not because we struggle and strive. It's not because we're earning anything. It's simply because we've said, well, I'm going to step out and I'm going to let God bring this out in me. I'm going to live by the new nature that God has given me as a free gift. There's no effort of earning or law involved in that at all. And uh, remember as well that under the law, the Old Testament law, obedience was required as the condition for receiving God's love and acceptance. I mean, because if you didn't obey the law, God didn't accept you, he didn't love you, blah, blah, blah. But under grace, all right, we obey God's laws, confessing and repenting when we sin, as a response of love to the love and acceptance from God that we have unconditionally. See, under the law, you had to do it or you were lost. Good incentive, or at least to try, all right? But under grace, we cannot be lost. We have God's love and acceptance, whether we're faithful to him or not. We're going to get to heaven whether we're faithful to him or not. So the response of, of our part in being sanctified is the response of love. 
It's not, oh, I've got to because, you know, I'm going to lose out eternally if I don't or something like that. It's because we want to. It's because the idea of being freed from this old nature actually seems to us a good idea. And I think it's a very good idea. You know, it seems far better than saying, oh, no, I, you know, I don't want holiness. I, I just want to be how I was before I got saved. Because I jolly well don't. I want, I'm glad God has changed me, and I want to, to keep working out what God has worked in so that that change goes on and on and on. So, can you see the point? We were justified, i.e. set free from the penalty of sin when we believed on Jesus, we received it as a free gift. Ours was the response of faith. We didn't do something that, that earned us anything at all. It wasn't works in that sense. And with sanctification, it's the same thing. God has given us the new nature. He has worked it all in. And sanctification, far from being by works or by law, is simply the obedience of simple faith. It's saying, well, the Word of God says it, I, I believe it, I'm going to step out on that. It's the response of obedient faith to God. But no different at all to the obedient faith that you showed when you came to Jesus in the first place. That was a gift. Sanctification is a gift. It's all a gift. It's all part and parcel of the new covenant of grace that God has called us into. You can blow it, you can say no to it. A Christian can be carnal their whole lives. They can say, I don't want to change, I prefer sin. The Lord says, okay, fair enough. See you in glory when you get there, kind of thing. But the point is that for those who do want that new nature to grow and develop in them, it's not by their works, it's not by their effort, it's simply by their obedient faith and response out of a desire in their hearts to live in the new rather than to continue all the time in the bondage of the old. And uh, obviously that was covered in the Salvation series largely so I'll leave it there, but nevertheless that was a question that seemed to be important. Justification is by faith through grace. Sanctification is by faith through grace. It's a free gift. The whole thing has nothing to do with our effort or our works whatsoever. It is all from God start to finish. Now then, next time what we're going to move on to do is to identify the attitudes and outlooks of our twin errors of legalism and license. Because, I mean, in this law and grace thing, in effect, the reason we've done it is at least partially to highlight those falsehoods of legalism on the one hand, license on the other. They're, they're serious false teachings, and we need to make sure that we're steering a middle course, not falling into them. So next time, uh, the attitudes and outlooks of believers with a streak of legalism in them and then the attitudes and outlooks of believers with a streak of license in them. And uh, the reason that we're going to be doing that, I spot the legalist, spot the Christian into license, in effect that's what we're doing next week, is so we can all look at ourselves and judge ourselves accordingly. Because legalism and license are both dangerous and they're certainly dishonouring to the Lord and he hates them both. And uh, so we need to make sure that we're steering a, a course that avoids them to whatever extent that we can. So. Come back next week for, for the next exciting episode. Brilliant.